It's realizing what we're saying to ourselves and then practicing, whether it's mentally, whether it's spoken out loud, whether it's writing down the thought and then writing down the correction for that thought underneath it. It's practicing pushing back on those thoughts and reality checking. That is so key. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Rage Active Podcast. It's been such a pleasure again seeing everyone enjoying the recent episodes, and I'm so grateful for you all tuning in. If you haven't already, make sure you hit subscribe so that you get the latest episodes as soon as they are released. This week, I'm sitting down with one of the wonderful authors of the new book, The Manual. This is a blueprint for the modern man, a practical guide to life, health, and happiness. He is a medical doctor, psychiatrist, and mental health advocate, of course. I'm talking about the wonderful Dr. Kieran Kennedy. Welcome back to the show, Dr. K. Thank you so much, Rach. Not too kind like intro as always from you. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just so excited to be here. Like we were just saying, we haven't caught up properly in ages and our last chat was a banger. So it was. Yeah, just it was thanks so for having good. me back. Oh, no worries. Thanks for being on the show. This has been a long time coming because... Uh, of course, when I spoke to you last time, both you and Scotty had been on the podcast before mm-hmm. and, and this was all very hush-hush at the time. We couldn't really talk about it on air, so it's finally here. <laughs> there were like a few little hints dropped and stuff that we were working on something, but it was a bit hush-hush. So, yeah, yeah it's weird. There's, there's zero hush about it now. So, no, a <laughs> yeah. little bit of a teaser, but it is finally here, the manual, a blueprint mm. for the modern man. Now, firstly, congratulations. It must feel so good to hold the book in your hands. I mean, I've got one here. Thank you. Yeah, I've and got one And it feels here amazing. Well. Yeah. There you it's, go. It's wild. It's so, it's, so good. It's so crazy. And, there, and there's so much to catch up on because obviously we've – and we have missed each other a few times. I've been in Sydney mm. and we couldn't line up the times and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So – so excited. Now, we'll of course pop the link up in the show notes so you guys can you guys listening can grab yourself a copy of the book. Now, there's so many really interesting pieces to this book and overall what's really refreshing to see and I've said this to both you and Scotty is when you were both on the podcast last is that you're what you're doing in terms of bringing forward this this new role model for masculinity, mm. this all-encompassing approach to masculinity and what it means to be a man and you both bring this in terms of perspective as a step away from the whole kind of six pack abs biceps and leaning into highlighting a more holistic approach for health and happiness for men. So to start, I'm interested to rewind the clock because in the book you mentioned that you both fumbled your way through your 20s and have come into your 30s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really wanting to share what you've discovered. So I want to track back when you arrived in your 20s, how had your childhood and your experiences and things that you had observed growing up, how had that informed your idea of what it means to be a man at that point in your life when you arrived in your 20s? Oh, I mean, this is why I love chatting to you, Rach, and why we have <laughs> such good talks on your body, because um, that's a zinger of a question and such a good place to start. Uh, yeah, Scotty and I both talk about it in the book a little bit. Um, and obviously, I grew up in Australia. Scotty grew up, uh, sorry, Scotty grew up in Australia. I grew up in New Zealand. Don't even know where I'm from anymore. 
Um, but yeah, we sort of came from different spaces and places. But as you say, especially back then in um, my 20s, it was kind of moving through life as we all do and moving through becoming a young man and stepping into adulthood and all of that. Um from a frame of growing up in quite a small rural Kiwi town. Um, and that was really my, I guess, initial space and place that I kind of got that flavor of, of what masculinity was and what it meant to be a boy and a man. And, you know, for the most part, I was really, really lucky. And I am really lucky that I'm surrounded by a lot of very strong men. Um, you know, my granddad's my dad, uh, I have three brothers. So a big family of, of, men um and ones who have always kind of in some ways you know really pushed some of the more traditional roles that men kind of have stepped into especially in New Zealand like there's a lot of that kind of quite classic stereotypical manhood of masculinity in terms of you know box on harden up toughen up uh you know I grew up in a farming community quite a small town so there was quite a traditional sense of what it meant you know to be a young man um, but I was very lucky as well that a lot of the men around me also, you know, were strong on that emotional mental front as well. Um, and very lucky that my dad, for example, has always been the kind of man who, you know, hasn't shied away from talking about feelings and emotions. Um, and I'm very lucky as I moved through my twenties as well, that that was the case with my brothers and my close male friends as well. A lot of the, the kind of the the guys that I gravitated towards in high school and, and uni, you know, were men who were kind of balancing worlds of, of masculinity. You know, we loved the gym, the farm, the outdoors, but also loved kind of a good chat, a good DNM, as a lot of guys secretly or not so secretly enjoy. Uh, uh-huh. And, you know, just balancing that. So I think for me, I grew up kind of knowing that masculinity and manhood could be this balance of kind of the hard and soft um mm. but also as a young guy weathered you know some of the difficulties in terms of maybe not fitting in at times to some of those kind of more traditional pressureful filled stereotypes around masculinity too mm. well I mean I think that's so amazing that you had that sort of exampling from the people around you mm. being able to have that strong emotional front because I don't know if that's everyone's experience you know yeah. and and like you said that traditional stereotypical idea of masculinity is something that we definitely have heard mm-hmm. a lot even even if you're you know a woman that's that's something that yeah. we hear anyways totally so what what else in terms of your in your 20s mm. your specific experiences that you went through in your 20s that has really impacted and shifted your perception of what it means to be a man because in that 20s era you're discovering a lot about yourself and obviously you start doing things that you you know weren't doing when you were a kid yeah did you encounter any specific experiences that really solidified that idea of bringing the two together yeah, look, I think for me, my 20s were a bit of a melting pot of different things. Um, I was at uni for eight years of my life. And so most of my 20s were spent studying and at uni and at medical school. Um, and that came with its fair share of partying and experimenting <laughs> and doing all those things we do in our 20s. But it was also a lot of hard work and a lot of just diving into medicine, really. Um, and I think one of the 
big things that has shaped my sense of men's health and masculinity as a whole has been my experience of medical school and medicine. Um, you know, seeing people, obviously including men, kind of at their darkest weakest most kind of humbling moments whether it's with physical illness or pain or with mental struggles and pain as well um and i think as i moved through my 20s those were moments that really kind of shaped my sense of of masculinity and and men's health as well the sense that on the outside again i think especially in new zealand and australia men are often kind of pushed and pressured to feel like you almost have to put on this invincible front and it has to be a lot about you know abs and biceps and protein powders and success and career and money and and all of those things that men have traditionally had pushed on them but in medicine and and medical school I really got these very powerful glimpses into men being frightened, men having to come up against their own mortality, um, men having to open up about emotions and mental struggles and mental illness, obviously, as I moved through in my later 20s into kind of specializing in psychiatry and mental health as well. So there was that side of things. And then personally, for me as well, kind of moving through my 20s and into my 30s, there was a lot of kind of personal discovery as well, you know, just moving through life and uh, learning within myself to, to love, you know, the gym, bodybuilding, some of those more traditionally masculine kind of ways of being and loving that, but also, you know, stepping into the fact that I've always been a, a sensitive, quite emotional guy um, and, you know, kind of stepping into those things for me personally as well. Yeah. Yeah. I really love that you've been able to, and I've said this to you before, to bring the two together and really be able to show, I mean, if you check out Kieran's Instagram, you can see how well in shape he is, but also being able to bring the the mental health part of it into it as well. And both are so equally important. And I really mm, love absolutely. that approach to masculinity. Now, right. I, I, there's there's a lot of discourse around masculinity at the mm. moment and mm-hmm. rhetoric on the, uh, I guess, on the other end of the scale as well, if you kind of look at it in a continuum. Yeah. Why do you think there is such a surge of interest in this area? I feel like I'm hearing mm. about this so much more yeah. than previous times. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that was one of the kind of the factors that made us want to write this book, Uh, you know, because there's so much discourse out there around it, Uh, a lot of confusion, I think, for men and especially young men right now around concepts of masculinity and who they are or who they're expected to be. Um, You know, and I think it's out there a lot in recent years because men have had to come through you know, a a number of different kind of pressure points and, um, you know, we coin the frame and phrase in the book, but a, a number of reckonings kind of for men in society in recent years. And these are all things that have needed to happen and been building towards happening in a way. But, you know, there's been the Me Too movement, um, sort of aspects of, of how men really got hit in terms of our mental health during the pandemic and with COVID. You know, there's been some key points, I think, in society recently that have really kind of called out some of these older, more traditional, outdated, I dare say, kind of concepts of masculinity and manhood. And it's kind of led us to discuss and think more about, well, what are some of the points of masculinity that are more helpful for men's health and the health of our communities and for women and those around us? And and what are some of the things that are are kind of less helpful or harmful to, to those same spaces and places? So 
it's a it's a real sort of changing front. And in the book, we talk as well about the fact that it's a bit of a daunting time, but it's also a beautiful time because I think we're sort of seeing masculinity almost get rewritten. You know, there are concepts of masculinity and femininity, gender, sexuality, how we live, how we work, all of these things are tied up in masculinity. And a lot of those things are sort of shifting and being debated and, and you know, things at the moment. So masculinity is in a bit of a flux state right now. <laughs> yes, it really is. And and it is so interesting to see that it is part of almost mainstream discourse now. It really mm-hmm. is. I feel like it's just we're hearing so much of it. Yep. Now, there's a few quotes that I really loved when I read them in your book. The modern man shows up in strength while leaning into the vulnerable too. He is no longer defined by career, possessions, or status. The modern man is he who pivots, he who writes his own destiny. And I really love that. And uh, this whole idea about being defined by career, possessions, and status, this still Mm. very much exists in culture today. And I, I personally, you know, know a lot of men who actually do really attribute a lot of their worth and intrinsic value to these external measures of success and it's definitely what our culture and society I think has as a whole has implicitly told us to some degree absolutely aspire to right for for men but also with women yeah we get this message about what a man should be and who we should be looking for Mm -hmm. in terms of a romantic partner so Mm -hmm. how do men reconcile this for themselves because being able, you, you've been able to do it so beautifully, but for obviously people reading this book, that's part of why you've written this book, to be able to bring these together. Mm. So how, how do men reconcile this for themselves when this kind of ideology or, or this messaging has been so strong in our culture to now bring into the, into the mix qualities of being vulnerable and, mm. and all of those kinds of things. Yeah, I think it's really, really important to frame first and foremost that it's it's not easy, you know, and, and it's so easy for us to say or write, you know, masculinity is changing and we need to define ourselves, you know, by more than just our, you know, bicep circumference or, as you say, Rachel, our, our position in society, our salary at the end of the year, our position at work or what car we drive. It's not easy changing some of those concepts when they've been embedded in the minds of not just men, but also women, as you say, from when we were very, very young. You know, And when it comes to cultural and societal concepts like femininity and masculinity, those take time to shift because just as you say, they're things that we're often not directly told. You know, no one sat me down in that small rural town as a, as a young boy and, and said, you know, if you're going to kind of fit into this world and be a man and have masculinity, then you need to do X, Y, and Z. But we kind of pick up these things from men around us, from, other kids at school we pick them up from movies and books and what we see on tv and so you're right Rach. we kind of for a long time as men have had these implicit kind of pressures and myths basically put into our minds to couple our identity and our worth to things like our status or our position at work or our bank balance or the watch we have or the car we drive. And those are obviously quite stereotypical things I'm pulling out there. But we are leaning into a space and place now, I think, and I think Scotty and I both think, where that is starting to shift because men are kind of waking up to the fact that 
relying solely on these things for our sense of worth and identity and well-being isn't actually contributing to our mental health in a beneficial way in a lot of ways. Uh, and I think for a long time, it's actually been holding men back when it comes to who they are and their concept of, of self. Um, men aren't born with a, a part of the brain that makes them not want to talk about touchy feelies or mental health. Men aren't born with a part of the brain that makes them less emotional than women. A, a lot of these things are things that men have been made to believe and almost adopt onto themselves as they've grown up. And so I think in terms of shifting that for men, it's around acknowledging that we've kind of been led to believe a lot of these things. And it's not about us. It's about those beliefs and social pressures. And then it's slowly starting to lean into some of those other aspects of self. And by that, I think it's men defining themselves and their health by how they're doing mentally by things that they enjoy for the sake of enjoying them that aren't attached to status or work or power. Um, it's leaning into knowing that talking about emotions or reaching out for help aren't points of shame or weakness, which are things that men believe in a lot of surveys and research. Uh, so I think acknowledgement is always key. Um, and that's a very psychiatristy answer, but I think <laughs> until we realize that something is there, we can't start to shift it. And so a big part of the book is, is us just discussing and calling out these concepts. And hopefully that in itself starts a bit of a snowball zone for, for sort of some of these things changing and shifting. Yeah, you're so right. It's bringing about that awareness because that awareness is the first step to any change, right? If you don't know that there's yeah. an issue, you can't look at things objectively. You can't then make that that shift within yourself if you're going to change these beliefs for yourself around Absolutely. masculinity. Yeah. So let's talk about the feels because like you were just saying, this is something that perhaps men have not been really taught to be okay with or, or necessarily highlight. And in mm -hmm. the book, you describe this as the feels are all about how we frame how and why we live as modern men. And there's several aspects that you touch on in the book. But if we hone in on a very talked about subject at the moment as well, which is modern dating, yes. there's a section in there that you talk about <laughs> because in your line of work, I'm, I'm sure seeing lots of clients, what seems to have emerged is this fear of rejection that men face and is not often spoken about. So can we unpack this a little bit? Men fearing rejection in the context of dating. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, fear of rejection, especially in the romantic dating world, is there for all of us. Doesn't matter who you identify as, what your gender is, what bits you have underneath your clothes. You know, rejection is is a scary thing and rejection really hits us. And it's a fascinating area of psychology and psychiatry, actually, because at, at our most evolutionary kind of basis, rejection kind of back in those times, way, way back, rejection potentially meant death. You know, if we weren't associated with or brought into the fold in terms of those around us, and especially on a romantic level, there was a risk that we would die from starvation, cold, predators, all of those other things. And then one of our most basic drives, obviously, as well, is to connect emotionally, to to procreate if we're thinking right back in those evolutionary times as well so rejection in the brain has been framed as this this key kind of core that hits us when it's present and so that's understandable then that it's a, it's a real fear for all of us and it hits hard and 
I think we all know that that you know knife edge when when it hits us. Uh, but for men, I think it's especially become a really difficult thing to weather in the dating world and with relationships because again, kind of that sort of status uh, dating and sexual prowess. All of that side of things are traditionally masculine kind of stereotypes and pressures that men still grow up with as well. You know, I think part of those masculine pressures is, you know, not struggling in the dating world. It's been on the top of your game kind of sex wise and, and dating wise. It's having sort of others see that your status in the the pack or the group is is sort of protected and clear and so i think when there's rejection in the dating world or a fear of rejection that can feel like a really really significant thing for men um and so we talk about in the book the fact that that's actually something that holds a lot of men back when it comes to relationships and with dating and it actually frames a major core to a lot of the anxiety that a lot of men today experience in the dating world um and that is something as you say Rach that I I don't think we're talking about enough as men yeah yeah I think that this is so helpful for men and women to understand because it definitely is something that it 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 really isn't acknowledged that much and even women aren't so aware of it either and with Mm -hmm. this discourse around masculinity femininity and dating there's this whole idea you know we're getting told the men should be pursuing and all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Why aren't they doing it? That kind of thing. And then, you know, women are finding that maybe that's not really happening for them either. So this, Mm -hmm. this understanding this is, I think, a great piece for women as well to understand the psychology of dating from the men's perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So what have you discovered with seeing clients and your observations around rejection and dating are they sort of finding now with especially with the culture like it is today Mm. is it becoming more almost more prevalent in a way where it's where we're more or they're more fearful of it yeah I think so I think there's a there's a real sense of of rejection and things potentially not working out in the modern dating world maybe being a little bit more prevalent Um, Mm. and I think with the way dating is structured at the moment I've spoken to a lot of young men around fears with, you know, dating apps and meeting people through apps. Uh, You know, we're talking about ghosting and all of these other kind of phrases, which if I try and kind of think of all the other acronyms and stuff that are out there now. So many, are they? We'll get lost talking about them and that'll be the rest of the podcast. But, you know, I think at the moment rejection uh, is a very real part of modern dating um, because there is a lot of kind of um, searching for the perfect. There's a lot of kind of moving on quite quickly. There's a lot of swiping, not just with our fingers, but swiping with our mind as well. And so I think for a lot of men, and again, it's not something that men are maybe acknowledging or talking about openly. The dating world at the moment is, is a very scary place and it's, it's a tricky place to be in and that's the same for women as well obviously as you say Rach um, but again when it comes to kind of making ourselves open vulnerable communicative for dating and for a relationship it does take I think acknowledging 
that there is often quite a lot of fear and anxiety underneath that about the whole process itself. And it's, as we say, again, coming back to that, if we don't acknowledge what's there, we can't kind of work through it and stop it from blocking us on that mental, emotional front. So it's it's calling that out as men and calling out the fact that it, it's not a hit to your masculinity or your manhood. If you are quite anxious about dating or you are quite worried about rejection or you've been rejected in the past and that's making diving back into the dating game or a new relationship pretty damn scary. Yeah, it's just good to acknowledge it and 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 be okay that you're having those feelings basically. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah. So this is linked to negative self-talk and and I know you're referring to men specifically in the book, but this mm. is universal again as all humans experience this mm-hmm. to some degree. And in relation to negative self-talk, it one of one of the things in the book you say acknowledging fear of rejection when dating is a powerful tool learning to ignore negative self-talk can be a big confidence booster mm-hmm. so what do you mean by that and what are your best suggestions for dealing with negative self-talk yeah this is as you say one of the biggest things that i have seen across my work in psychiatry and and just with kind of work in the mental health space in general I think so often we are just completely unaware what our mind is actually doing in the background and what we're actually saying to ourselves. Um, You know, I think there have been points in my life where probably a lot of the self-talk that was going on in my mind was actually really unhelpful and and really, really negative. Um, And there are points in the book, and I know Scotty talks about quite openly as well, the fact that you know, for him kind of leaning into knowing and realizing that a lot of his self-talk was really pretty awful and not how you talk to any of your mates, any of your loved ones, any of your family, you know, and just realizing that was a bit of a game changer. Um, And I think that's the absolute key. It's again, learning to acknowledge what our self-talk is doing and call it out when it's there um, and again, it's not easy and it takes practice, but something that I've talked to, to clients and patients about is just realizing what we're saying to ourselves and then reality checking it. And we talk about that in the book with negative self-talk, but also anxious thoughts, depressive thoughts. It's about reality checking things because often these automatic thoughts and this negative self-talk is completely unrealistic. It's survival, fight or flight brain mode where we're saying that was awful. You're going to get fired after that presentation or, oh, my God, she's looking at me and thinking I look terrible or that was the worst date I've ever been on. There's no way he's going to text me back. Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of self-talk, which is really unhelpful and just kind of flares negative emotions and anxiety further. And actually, if we catch those thoughts as they're happening, we realize there's often no evidence for that at all, or maybe they're black and white, they're catastrophizing. Um, And so it's kind of calling them out and gently starting to push back on them, which is key. And research and clinical work shows that with time, if we just practice doing that and we won't be perfect, especially to start with, we can actually start to shift the frame of mind where our thoughts live uh, and make them more positive and realistic rather than sort of negative and unrealistic when it comes to the self. Mm, I know that that happens a lot, especially with people who do, 
go into anxiety spirals, that catastrophizing, yeah. thinking mm-hmm. about worst case scenario. And like you said, it is, and that, and that's just a repetitive thought that you've thought many times before, and that's why it's so ingrained, so mm. habitual, right? Yeah. And so, like you said, overriding that and making that a practice, that essentially becomes a new habit, Absolutely. a new thought pattern. Yeah, and, yeah. and in a way, people, we often forget that a lot of our thought processes are habits. They're habitual ways of interpreting and perceiving not just the world, but ourselves, And so it might actually be the case for a lot of people that they have very negative self-talk and very negative perceptions of themselves because thinking about themselves in that way and saying certain things to themselves, even in the background when they look in the mirror, has become a mental habit. It's become a belief, a subconscious belief that is just locked in there. And if we don't actually question it or push back on it, then the mind wants to simplify things and go on believing what it believes if it feels that those things are serving it in a habitual sense in terms of making life more clear, uh, easier, simple. And that's even the case if that simplicity is a negative stream of belief about ourselves. So it's, it's realizing what we're saying to ourselves and then practicing whether it's mentally, whether it's spoken out loud, whether it's writing down the thought and then writing down the correction for that thought Mm. underneath it, it's practicing pushing back on those thoughts and reality checking. That is so key. Yeah, it's that point of awareness when you're having the thought uh, as it happens to not believe it basically or at least question it. Absolutely. Yeah. What is your best suggestion for that moment? Because I know it can be very difficult when it's an habitual thought you have been thinking it over and over and over again. It's something that naturally happens. Do you have mm. a suggestion of, of catching yourself in that moment? Because sometimes also when you're going through an anxiety, you know, you feel that physiological rush through the body. Everybody experiences it differently. But when you're in that fight or flight state, sometimes it's really hard to, to think about what you're thinking, you know, and you, you're so caught up in that, in that physiological state of being. So do you have... A, a tip or something that people can use to just almost step themselves out of that state enough mm. with enough space that they can go, mm, hang on a second. I think that's a thought that maybe isn't true. Yeah, totally. And again, not easy. Mm. We need to call that yes. out. A lot of this stuff is so much easier said than done. But that is such a good point, um, Rach. And, you know, using the body and using what we're feeling as a bit of a catch point to then see what's going on in our mind is actually a really helpful tool Mm. because often we don't do that. Often we don't stop and think, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling stressed or overwhelmed or I'm suddenly feeling low or pissed off or frustrated. We often don't think to stop and kind of check where that's coming from. Mm. And often, and this is one of the cause to CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, often it's a thought which is kind of either sparking or at least flaring and continuing that emotion. So one of the tips can be to notice what's happening in your in your body and with your emotions and then use that as a bit of a catch point to stop and say, okay, well, what am I actually thinking right now? Or what thought did I have right before I started feeling that drop in my mood or that anxious kind of overwhelmed feeling? Mm. Again, that's not always easy Mm. to kind of rewind and think, well, what was I thinking just then? So it can help to kind of connect the three things that we know often go together. 
it's a situation or something that we've seen or heard or something that's happened. It's a thought and it's an emotion. Mm. So I think catching thoughts can come either from the emotion that we're feeling or the situation that we're in. And it's using that to then try and piece it together to allow ourselves to get that space to catch the thought that's there. Yeah. So it might be, I don't know, you've been in a scenario at work and all of a sudden you're just feeling boil point anxious, your gut's churning, you feel your face flushing, you feel really panicked and prickly all over your skin. And often we just feel that emotion and we let that snowball. I'm anxious, I have to get out of here, I can't do this, or this is awful, I hate this place. (laughs) Um, But if we feel that emotion and then think, okay, well, right before I started feeling this, my boss looked over at me. And then we might be able to triangulate that to the fact that a thought popped into our mind of he's looking over at me because he thinks I'm terrible at my job. Mm. And actually, if we catch that moment, it might be the case that we then think, well, actually, maybe he was just looking over at us because the girl next to me coughed. Or maybe he was looking over at me and actually just wondering if I was enjoying the session or, or what I was thinking in the meeting. It's, it's, again, calling out what thoughts might be there and how they are triggering our emotions. That, that is kind of one of the key points to catching them, I think. Mm, and it's that link between body and mind, which which is so key mm-hmm. as well as understanding the thoughts and the body are connected and it, it kind of spirals and Absolutely. creates that pattern. Totally. Yeah. Now, there are a few different topics you explore around men and the mind, anxiety, body image, habits, meditation and mm. sleep. Now, which area have you found to be the most problematic talking to people in your line of work? Ooh, there's a fair few. <laughs> all right, modern, modern life doesn't make any of those things easy. No, does it doesn't at all. Sleep, exercise, social contact. Mm. Um, you know, so uh, it'll be different for, for everyone, obviously. But, I mean, one of the things I talk about a lot is sleep. Um, and the fact that sleep has such a powerful influence on our physical health, but also our mental health. And I think for a lot of men, sleep has been something that we've kind of been pushed to believe, especially in modern society, is a bit of a down the list type item. Mm. You know, we get the beers with the boys sorted or work or whatever else we have to do first. And then if we can get some decent sleep from there, then, you know, we'll try and get what we can. So I think realizing how important sleep is, especially to men's mental health, is really, really key. Uh, And in the book, we talk about sleep specifically and and run through quite a few tips for not just trying to get more of it, but for getting more quality Mm. sleep. Uh, And that can be one of the keys. um, And that's something that I see people struggling with a lot. And that's something that I talk to people about a lot because small or seemingly small changes to things like that can have a huge flow-on effect to what's happening with mood and anxiety and and mental and physical health as well. Yeah, sleep is so important. And I I did find this really interesting because you do sort of refer to quite a few different little facts and and studies and things. And Mm. so this was one that was in relation to sleep that you mentioned in the book, which is studies reveal that sex before bed increases REM sleep by on average 8% with some positions up to 34%. Mm, so that's yeah. something I didn't know. Now, can we confirm? Do we have data on the best sex positions to increase REM sleep? Everyone who's listening just suddenly turns the volume up on this part. Or can we make uh, an educated so, hypothesis? <laughs> I mean, as the study there shows, 
research has found some links between obviously sex and sleep and then different positions when it comes to sex before sleep and different positions uh, and different types of sex being more or less helpful. Um, look, I think this is an area that's, that's probably going to need more research. <laughs> this will be the second book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely won't go out on a limb and say, if you want a good night's sleep and to look after your mental health, then you know you need to practice the wheelbarrow or something. Um but yeah, I think it sort of shows again that our body is just intimately connected to what's happening in our mind and especially what's happening with our sleep as well. Um, you know, so positions and uh, ways of being and leading up to bed and things can have a real impact on how we sleep. And that can come down to what's happening in our body, uh, how relaxed we're feeling versus unrelaxed we're feeling, whether we get oxytocin and serotonin hits. Um, so, yeah, all of that can come into it, I think. But that was a, a very interesting little study to include in the book. So, yeah. so interesting. I think we can just broaden the scope by saying your nighttime routine has an impact on your, <laughs> has an impact yeah. on your sleep. <laughs> yeah. Well, we do talk about the fact that uh, a, a key tip for, for good sleep is to make sure that you're only using the bed for sex or sleep. Um, <laughs> so, again, the fact that for a lot of people, sleep uh, and sex go hand in hand and, and can be helpful um, is a different factor. But, yeah, I think keeping laptops, movies, phones and everything else out of bed and just keeping the bed for for sex, regardless of what position you're, you're going for. Uh, and sleep is, is an important <laughs> one to kind of bump up the quality as well. Amazing. Well, that's a little fun fact for you guys listening now. I've got yeah. the final. You're welcome. Yeah, you're welcome, Dr. K. <laughs> All right. So I've got the final hot three questions for you, Dr. K. What drives you? Oh, that's a biggie. Uh, what drives me is really using my geek out passions and things that I love reading about and learning, um, you know, using those things to kind of get information and medical knowledge and advice out to people um, where it might not have connected with them in the past. You know, I think that's a big driver for me is, is getting information out there in a fresh way and a new way to, to hopefully help people because um, health doesn't just happen in the hospital and in the GP clinic. It happens in real life so what drives me is is getting that out there with chats like this or books or any other way I can do it that's amazing well you definitely are doing that especially with this book which is going to be amazing when everyone gets their hands on this book to read it now the second hot question that I have for you if you had something in your life that you could redo or relive what would it be and why oh that's such a goodie um I think it would be some of my travels, um, you know, like, I mean, A, I would relive them because I just absolutely love travel and um, would love to relive some of the amazing times that I've had. Uh, but yeah, I think with travel, especially when I was younger and maybe in my 20s, you know, just being able to go back and appreciate some of the things uh, a lot more and in terms of some of the spaces and places that I, I was in. Um yeah, I, I think we can just get so much from different cultures and different places and meeting different people. Um, and so, yeah, I think being able to go back and relive some of those amazing experiences, but also get a little bit more out of them and, uh, you know, maybe spend a little less time on pub crawls and stuff. <laughs> <in your old. laughs> 
<laughs> might be might be a nice thing to do if we could rewind the time. Yeah, experience experience where you are a little bit more, which would be which would be yeah. lovely. And the final <laughs> question I have for you is: What is the biggest lesson you have learned in your life so far? Ooh, I think the biggest lesson that I've learned personally in my life so far is um, that just connection is is key. Mm. You know, and, and I think it's kind of leaning into the fact that there are a lot of things in our life like achievements and work and all of these other things that we as men, women and anyone else have pushed and placed onto us. But, you know, I think it's it's kind of remembering and, and just reminding ourselves of myself that it's some of those basics that are the key to life um, and connection with others and just really kind of fostering that and, and taking the time for that is what's really, really important. Um, so it's a, that's a big life lesson and, and something that I'm stepping into so far. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's many of them, that's for sure. Yeah. Life is never without a, a lesson being thrown at There us. isn't. And I'm sure next time we talk, there'll be another one because we, of, of course we're always so. learning, right? But I really like that. Yeah. A lot, the simple things. Yeah, well, simple things yeah. yeah the simple things are the important things yeah yeah and and i think that you know that's just something that i've seen and found so much with medicine as well you know i think just uh you know seeing people in some of their hardest physical and mental moments seeing people at the end of their lives you know just realizing that it's that simple um kind of down to the yeah, that, that basic foundational stuff that kind of frames our life and our health and happiness so often. And you know, that's something that we've tried to put forward in the book as well. Yeah. It's kind of stripping things back to the things that are actually important and actually contribute to our health and happiness. Yeah. Oh, I really like that so much. The simple things, right? Amazing. Well, mm-hmm. thank you so much for being on the show again, as always. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. I know we could talk for ages, <laughs> but we can't yeah, because no. we, we need to wrap up. But where can people find this amazing book, guys? The Manual, again, by Dr. Kieran Kennedy and Scotty Hendo. Where can we go to get that? Well, the good thing is that um, you can pretty much find it in all the spaces and places where you get your books uh, or where you get your audio books, which is great. Um, and it's been a very surreal thing popping into like random little bookstores on walks with my partner or like seeing mates and stuff, seeing pictures of it in places. So, um it's in just a lot of the bookstores that are out there. Um, it's in sort of Big W, Dimex, um, all of those big retailers, or you can sort of pop online um, to Pam McMillan as well and order it online. And then really cool that you can get the audio book through sort of all your audio book spaces as well. Um, and I'm a bit of a diehard audio book fan. So, so good. unless people are really, really averse to this Kiwi accent, um, because we did <laughs> record the audio book ourselves which was fun um yeah the audio book might suit uh, people as well for kind of getting this info and over breakfast or over their commute to work and, and stuff yeah amazing yeah. so we'll pop the links up in the show notes there's a variety of different ways as kieran said different retailers but we'll pop up the online links where you can get the audio book as well and if if people want to find out more about you dr k where can people go to find out more about your lovely work uh, well, I uh, am a bit ramshackle with uh, my posting frequency and things at the moment, <laughs> but uh, I uh, 
like to get info out there um, in terms of psychology, medicine, mental health, and a bit of life stuff on Instagram, um, just Dr. Karen Kennedy. Uh, and then I have a website as well, which is just drkarenkennedy.com, um, where I try and keep it as updated as I can with just bits and pieces of writing and media work, some of the TV sort of things that I dip in and out of. So, yeah, people can sort of see more of my stuff and hear more of my ramblings through those avenues. Um, Amazing. Yeah. So we'll, we'll pop them up as well in the show notes that you can check out. They've, you've got lots of blog posts and, and little media clips as well. So there's great information there that uh, Kieran is putting out there. So make sure you check it out, guys. We'll also pop up Scotty's links as well because he's the co-author. So make sure uh, at Scotty Hendo. Absolutely. A very, very vital. <laughs> a vital piece to the book. Part of the book as well. I know. Yeah. And we and he is not here today, but, uh, but we do miss um, Scotty. So we'll pop all those those links up for you as well. So make sure you check out Kieran and Scotty's good stuff, guys. Tell us what you loved and learned from this episode by leaving a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. Screenshot this episode, tag us and share it to your socials. Thank you so much again, Kieran, for joining me on the show. It's been a pleasure. Absolute no, it's pleasure. always such a pleasure and like I say, it's a shame that we can't just sit here and chat for three hours because <laughs> I don't know where that, that would go. time goes when we <laughs> when we have our chat. So, no, yeah, amazing. we'll have to schedule another one um, for some stage. Hopefully, so, yeah. Hopefully I'll be able to get up to Sydney at some point um, or, yeah. you know, whenever. We will, we will make it happen. <laughs> we will. But no, thank you so much for having me. It's absolutely Well, thank you guys for listening and we'll catch you next time on the Rage Active Podcast.